you don't have a Bible this morning, we have hardcover ESV translations of the Bible in the pew in front of you. If you find a, a hardcover ESV Bible in the pew, you can turn to page 739. Um, just in the way of warning, I'm actually not reading out of the ESV this morning. I will be reading out of the New King James Version, and I'm sorry, I, I hope that, that isn't confusing for anybody who's following along in... Um, in the ESV. If, if you are following along in different translation, I would just encourage you guys to, to keep at it, follow along as I'm reading. You'll see that the, the commonalities between the translations are pretty easy to navigate while you're hearing something different than what you're reading. Um, before we get started, I want to pray. Lord, uh, I ask for clarity this morning, clarity and truth and grace and love, all these good things that you bring with you. Um, what's been on my heart uh, while preparing for this sermon is the desire to speak clearly, Lord, that you would just loose the hesitations that I have and the ways that I confuse my phrases sometimes, and I pray that you would help me to say less, more clearly, and that everything that I say would be truth. Lord, your truth is found in Scripture. Jesus, you are truth. So I pray your Scripture is prominent this morning, that you are prominent this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Seems like a lot of our service so far has kind of touched on um, the brokenness of the world around us. It's very relevant to our passage this morning. Today we're in Daniel chapter 3, and... At this time, the known world was given over to an ungodly political power. So the nation of Israel was raised up with this identity that their God, the God Yahweh, was to protect his people, to provide for his people, and that he would mobilize the nation of Israel to bring peace throughout the brokenness of the world, a world that is torn down by harshness, by violence, and by abuse. By the time we get to Daniel, though, the nation of Israel has fallen. The kingdom has fallen and has been given over to the empire known as Babylon. And this political power represented everything that Israel hated. They were harsh. They were violent. They were idolaters. They, that, that means that they followed pagan gods and, and offered pagan practices to those gods. So when the nation of Israel looked at the world around them, all they could see was brokenness. It probably had them asking, where is God? Why is this happening? Have we been abandoned by our God? In God's faithfulness, he raised up prophets around this time who spoke pretty heavily about why the nation of Israel's kingdom had fallen and why they had been carried away captive to pagan nations. And these prophets said, it's because you guys served other gods yourselves. It's because you guys were idolaters. It's because you guys were unloving to the widow, the poor, the foreigner who came into your guys' lands. So God has given you over to these pagan nations. So these, these Israelites, disenfranchised, in captivity, or maybe they're still in Israel and just the shambles and ruins that was once their city are left seeing the brokenness around them and saying, well, this is what we deserve. We've got what was coming to us. It's fascinating to me how relevant that is to today. I don't know what socio-political you know, uh, position you ascribe to, but regardless of whether or not the, uh, the candidate that you wanted for was, is in the presidency, or somebody that you support is in Congress, or somebody that you think is powerful is the richest person on earth, regardless of where you stand with the specific people in power, I can guarantee you one thing. There is still an opposing party that you feel is ungodly and they are in power. And that's very depressing. It's very frustrating when you see somebody's ideals and you think this is a horrible, horrible person, and yet still they're being given authority and power and freedom to do whatever they want. 
I want to be clear, I'm not pushing a particular political agenda. I just know that regardless of where you stand socially or politically, that there's that presence in this world because this world is broken. Whether in the professional world, the political world, the social world, you feel that brokenness. And it could lead you to ask the similar questions that we said that the Israelites were probably asking, like, where is God in this? Have we been abandoned? Why has this happened? And maybe like the Israelites, you're smart enough to answer the question, well, we got what was coming to us. God's people failed to walk according to God's word. God's people uh, compromised too heavily. God's people were not loving and so now we have what we deserved. That can, be, that can be very, very concerning. Well, the passage that we have this morning is, is a place where we see that God's people are in the midst of this brokenness, and we see how they navigate facing a broken, godless system. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are our protagonists of this story. Those were their Aramaic names. Their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were stolen away as teenagers into the center of this godless nation. They were taken away to Babylon, and they were educated in their pagan system, and they were raised up and promoted to places of prominent power. We'll see that when they are faced with a controversial issue that betrays their conscience, what they do is just focus on serving God, and they don't keep it a secret. When we're under the thumb and authority of tyrants or ungodly people, we really only have two options. One, we can weaken ourselves. We can recoil, keep our head down, and just take care of ours and ourselves. We can weaken ourselves, not worry about the stuff going on up here, and just keep it low. This is, this is kind of what Gideon does in the book of Judges to begin with. But the, the downside of that is it doesn't change anything. It's selfish. The very best thing we can hope for is our own survival, and the next generation is as badly off as we were. The, the other option is we could do the opposite of that. We can strengthen ourselves. We could stand up for what is right. We could fight against the evils, or maybe we could compromise and align ourselves with those in power and be put in power ourselves because we've taken their ideals. The downside of that is the compromise. The downside of that is that even if we are fortunate enough to topple one tyrant, the next one rises up. It's like taking swings at the wind. Those two options, us weakening ourselves and strengthening ourselves, are both equally ineffective for change. What we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that in them personally serving the Lord and not being shy about it, somehow God uses that for change. One thing I want to set on the table before we read the passage is this. When we ask the question, where is God, and what do we do about it, we have to answer, where is God, first. In this passage, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find that God is still with them. That even though they were carried away and surrounded with a very abusive political climate at the time, a very abusive social climate at the time, God had not abandoned them. And if God hadn't abandoned them, that they would continue to serve God and do so plainly, unashamedly. And we should, we should do the same, guys. If God is still with us, if God is present with us, then we should plainly, publicly serve God and him alone. Let's read the passage. I'm going to read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to take this in chunks because we're going to do the full chapter. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately in the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard that the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This passage right here is really just setting the stage. It gives you all of the rules for the story that's about to ensue, but all of these rules are very important. So first of all, King Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold. Why of gold? Well, this is a glorious image. Some people believe that this is Nebuchadnezzar building this image in response to the dream that he had had and that we'd gone through in chapter 2. Remember, he has this dream of this massive statue, this image, where the head was made of gold and descending from head downward, the materials changed. When Daniel explained to Nebuchadnezzar what this, what this dream was about, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are a king of kings, and you are the head of gold. To you, God has given this great place of prominence. So maybe here in this, in this passage, when Nebuchadnezzar makes an image entirely of gold, maybe it's him responding against that and saying, you know, I'm going to go ahead and secure myself for all of history. Rather than this dream that says, you know, my time will come and go and somebody lesser will come along, maybe Nebuchadnezzar is trying to say, no, I think I'm going to make myself nice and comfortable here. We should understand that chapter 3 happens a significant amount of time away from chapter 2. Uh, a, a significant passage of time is years, not days. It's enough time for Nebuchadnezzar to make this massive structure. So how big is it? 60 cubits tall and six cubits wide. A cubit is roughly about a foot and a half. So this is 90 feet tall. It's not the tallest structure you've ever seen, but it is significant. Uh, the building that they're building uh, on Olive and 11th that has the Hugo House on the bottom, that's, about, that's just about half uh, of this height. So imagine two of those, one stacked up on top of the other. But what's interesting is it's only nine feet wide. That's not very wide. This statue is only about as wide as a smart car is long. So even though we, we can picture this as being um, a massive statue, a 90-foot tall statue of a human being image, the proportions don't really line up. It would have to be at least two times as wide as that. So some people say, just so you can get a mental image, it's not terribly important. Some people say that this is just a tower. Some people say that it's a tower with the image of a man on top of it. Some people kind of go in the middle and say, well, it's just a human head on top of a tower. That doesn't really matter. But it, if it helps you to imagine it in your head, there you go. A characteristic of not just one through seven, but the entire passage is massive repetition. There is repetition after repetition after repetition, and that's a literary device for the writer of this chapter to really hammer home something that's important, to belabor points. So there are a few different repetitions. The first one that you'll, you may have noticed is the list of officials. That, that have to obey this. I'll, I'll read it once through. It, it's there, it's going to be in there about three times, but once through, it's the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image, so on and so forth. We have that list in its entirety twice, and then again partially referenced a little bit later. It kind of reminds me of the Schoolhouse Rock song, Lucas Xavier Sarsaparilla. Do you guys know that one? No. I'm going to talk about it anyway. Uh, it's, it's a song in Schoolhouse Rock that teaches kids how to use pronouns. And so there's three characters in the song who have massively long names. And he says, I could say their entire names, but I don't have to because I have pronouns. And so you wonder, like, why doesn't the writer of Daniel just say, and those guys, or the people, or the officials? He goes through the weight of saying 
these roles over and over and over again. And the reason is, is to belabor what a massively extravagant affair this was. This required a lot out of a lot of different people, a lot of different statuses of people. These different roles of officials, you can kind of see it today as like, hey, you know, this wasn't just something that the governors had to do. It was something that even the beat cops had to do. And not just the beat cops, but even the clerks in the local office county buildings, and so on and so forth. It's various different statuses and levels of officials. We'll see a little bit later, though, it doesn't include everybody in government. We'll touch on that in a little bit. Another repetition we see here is the phrase which the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up referring to this image. We see this phrase uh, referring to this that he set up nine times in the passage. It's constantly belaboring, this is a work, and it's kind of a petty work of just some guy who has a whim, who has an idea. You could compare it uh, with chapter 2 in is verse, forget it, I won't read it from you, but, but in chapter 2, when Daniel is talking about that God had given the kingdom into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, he's talking about God giving. But then in chapter 3, nine times, it keeps referring to, this is something that Nebuchadnezzar set up, this is something that Nebuchadnezzar set up, this is something that he did. It's this petty, small whim of a human being, it's not important, and it's, it is petty. The last repetition I want to highlight for you guys is the list of instruments. The sound of the the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music. We're going to hear that, I think, three times in this passage. Again, it's, uh, it's this long list repeated, and you have to ask why. Interesting enough, in the original King James Version, the word here that's uh, translated for lyre is sackbutt. That's not important. I just thought you'd like to know that. What we have in this, in this passage, all these different instruments, it reminds us what a massive affair this was. Again, this is superfluous. This is a grandiose affair. There's, there's also some in the original language, this was written in Aramaic, there's some instruments there that are written in Greek, which is sort of strange. Maybe that's because this symphony represents different instruments that originated from different parts of the Babylonian Empire, and for them to come together and play together, it was a symbol of uniting all of the distant foreign provinces under one authority. Interesting, it also says that they were played in symphony, so this wasn't just a trumpet blast. There was some planning behind it, maybe even melodic composition. This is a lot of fanfare and a lot of pomp. All right, so the rules, the rules are in place. And in verse 7, this decree is realized. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, sackbut, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people's nation and languages fell down and worshipped at the gold image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So it looks like everything has gone according to plan. If you're familiar with this story this morning, you know that our three protagonists of the story do not participate, but we do not know that yet. Apparently, everything has gone according to plan. So let's read our next chunk, verses 8 through 12 is what I'll do. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and the symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. This part is the accusation. This is where things go awry for our protagonists, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In verse 8, we see that these men are Chaldeans. That is a race, but it's also a reference to their job. It's a culture where fortune-telling was very, very important, and that's the job that these Chaldeans had in the government of Babylon. They would 
They would tell fortunes. They would soothsay. And in chapter 2, they were also the ones who could not divine what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was or what it meant. So they come in to Nebuchadnezzar's presence and they say, O king, live forever. That's not super, super flattery, but... uh, but it is flattery. It, it's appropriate. It is, it's just one hair step above long live the king. You know, it's not this massive kiss up, but it is still uh, a pleasantry. They talk about him having made the decree, and we're, we're familiar with it. But I, I like these words here, shall fall down and worship the gold image. I'll give you a spoiler that in this part in the accusation, we're going to get a little bit of more of insight of what's behind this decree. In verses 1 through 7, it's, on the surface, all ceremonial. But now we're talking technical people. We're talking about people who know what's going on, and we're talking about the king himself. We're going to see that there's more to this decree than just what meets the eye on the ceremonial level. Right here, shall fall down and worship the gold image is interesting because it's so close in reference to one of the Ten Commandments. I'll pull it up in my notes here. This is in Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read it. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm going to just pull it up in my Bible because my notes aren't as good as my Bible is. Chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image. It's relative to our passage, right? An image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And we'll just pause there. This decree that that Nebuchadnezzar has set over the people in Babylon goes totally against this command, whether he meant to or not, but we have a reason to understand why Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego would not be for this. They themselves have a qualm against this because they've been commanded to not worship images and to not bow down to them. So we have a tension being built. Now, There are certain Jews who have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Do you hear the kind of jealousy undertone in that? Look, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see that they just kind of throw that in there. You know, these are guys that you put in charge. I'm not saying anything, but I do want you to know that you put them in charge. And he says that they, uh, they do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. They do not serve your gods... That was not a part of the original decree. It wasn't when I play all these instruments, all the people in all of these affairs have to fall down, serve my gods, and bow to this image. It was just they have to fall down and bow down. These Chaldeans understand that there's something deeper to the decree. And the accusation that they make is that these men do not serve your gods or worship your gold image. The accusation has been made. Next chunk, 13 verse, thirteen through 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you were ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music. You fall down and worship the image which I have made good, but... If you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. 
There's something very, very interesting in the interaction that we will uh, see between Nebuchadnezzar and these three protagonists, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's this duality. Nebuchadnezzar feels two conflicting feelings toward them at the same time. One, his mood. He is very, very, very upset. He is violently angry that these people just blatantly disregarded his law. That's one aspect of this. But on the other hand, he kind of has a soft spot for these three guys. It's interesting. We, we see it in, in the fact that he first takes a second to talk with them. He doesn't throw them into the fiery furnace. The, in verse 6, it says that very hour they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. He actually takes a second, though, to talk to them. And it's almost like he gives them a second chance. He goes by the decree, and he says, if you do these things, then that's good. But if you don't, then you'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. It's almost like he's trying to give them a way out. It's kind of like he's giving them an opportunity to say, oh, is that what we were supposed to do? Next time. I'll do it next time. Also later on, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer him, very interestingly, it says that his expression toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego changes. In some of the older translations, it says his countenance changed toward them. He was looking at them one way, before his anger takes over. He's got these two different feelings toward them. It's interesting that when these three faithful guys are serving in the environment of this broken political social system, that still they have favor in the sight of these broken, corrupt people because they're objectively good and hard workers. Okay. So, verses 16, 17, and 18, I would argue are the most important verses of this passage. Theologians who are more advanced than I am say that this chapter is written chiastically. And I, all that means is that it's built in such a way that the beginning and end of the passage are parallel to one another. They're very similar. At the beginning of the passage, Nebuchadnezzar gives a decree to worship. At the end of the passage, he's going to give a separate decree, which we'll get to in a second. What that device does is it brings a focal point to whatever happens in the middle is the main point that the writer is trying to make. Like an Oreo cookie, what's in the center is what is most important. So if that's the case, then verses 17, uh, 16, 17, and 18 are the focal point of this passage. There's, there's a lot of more exciting things that happen in the verses to come, but apparently this is what is most important. So let's look closely what they have to say. They answered the king and said to the king, they answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. First of all, look how they address him. They address him by name. They're not being disrespectful. They're not saying, O pig head, but they're also not even saying, O king. They will call him king in a bit, but there's something slightly different with their approach towards addressing the king than the Chaldeans who spoke to him earlier. Remember, they said, O king, live forever. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just say, O Nebuchadnezzar. They recognize they're just talking to a human being. They treat him with the dignity that a human being deserves. They're not insulting him, and yet they're also not over-revering him. What else is missing is that pleasantry, O king, live forever. They don't say live forever. There's this really sweet part in The Horse and His Boy, the C.S. Lewis book, where uh, there's a king in Kalorman, he's called the Tisrock, and whenever somebody says Tisrock, they have to interrupt their statement and say, may he live forever. Well, the horse, his name is Bree, he says Tisrock. And Shasta, who's the main character, he says, I say, oughtn't you to say, may he live forever? And the horse answers this, why, I'm a free Narnian, and why should I talk slaves and fools talks? I don't want him to live forever, and I know that he's not going to live forever, whether I want him to or not. And it's kind of like this, this understanding that Bree has in, in The Horse and His Boy is a little more indignant than what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are doing here. They just understand who they're talking to. They have an understanding of reverence and authority that exceeds the powers of the world. They know that ultimately they serve the Lord God who's the ultimate king over all things and who they're talking to is merely a man who set up a statue. And so they're not going to paint this with very big pleasantries. And then they say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I like in the King James Version, it says, we are not careful to answer to you in this matter. The translation means, 
we really don't care to talk about it. This is not them recoiling. They did something that was insurgent. They defied the law of the king, but they're also not overly strengthening themselves. They're not taking this saying, I'm so glad you asked. I can't wait to tell you all the thoughts I have about this decree that you gave us. It is evil. It goes against the, it goes against the commandments that God has given us in the book of Exodus. Um, you're disregarding the fact that you had an encounter with God just about a few decades ago. They don't take that second to take all those jabs. They just say, you know, I don't really care to talk about it a whole lot. Why might that be? We'll, we'll, we'll carry on in just a bit, and we'll, we'll refer back to it. <laughs> Verse 17, if that is the case, let's pause just right there. Um, if you have a New King James Version or whatever version you have, you may notice that there's quite a bit in that small grouping of words that's italicized. If, if you, there's ever anything in your Bible that's italicized, it means that it, it's been added in in order to clarify what the phrase means. The actual translation is just, if that and then they carry on. This king, the most powerful man in the entire world, this violent, crazed lunatic has just told him, you guys have done things that warrant me throwing you into a fiery furnace. I'm going to burn you alive. And they're like, if that, two words, not even very descriptive words. They don't, they don't express huge objection. They don't express fear. They don't even call it by name. They're like, yeah, okay, if you're going to do that, and even in fewer words than what I just said. If that... Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. If that, our God whom we serve. Our God whom we serve. I would argue that a massive theme in this chapter is about service, which is why I open the sermon by saying, if, if God is with us, we must serve him openly publicly and exclusively. Service is a massive theme in this passage. In fact, I want to double back a little bit and see this provocation that uh, Nebuchadnezzar slaps across these guys' faces. This is in verse 15 towards the end of it. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Who is he defying there? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? No, he's defying their God. I'm going to read it one more time. Hear, hear this out. Hear the uh, egoism in this. If you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Another question. Is Nebuchadnezzar here saying that his gods are more powerful than these guys' gods? He probably thought that, but that's not even what he's saying here. He's saying, my hands are more powerful than any God you could possibly serve. What God can deliver you from my hands? The answer that these guys give in verse 17 is a direct answer to that provocation. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. That's, that's a very packed phrase that they say there, and they use these words intentionally. They say that this is our God, it's the one we serve, and he is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. He's, it's, it has no question or regard on ability. God can do this. And then following it up, he says, he will deliver us from your hand, O king. They go back to the provocation. He says, who can deliver you from my hand? They say, our God will. And our God can deliver us from the fiery furnace, but he will certainly deliver us from your hand. Verse 18 is a qualifier, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. But if not, what? If they are not delivered from the fiery furnace. They know that God is able to do that. They know that he, God will deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar's hands, but he may not deliver them from the fiery furnace, even though he's able these guys have an understanding that is much greater than the context of the authority around them. Say, hey, 
God can save us from the fire, but if he doesn't and we die, still we end up delivered from your hands because we will be entered into God's eternal kingdom where he has authority in this place where there's not brokenness and abuse and violence. So regardless, we will be delivered by our God whom we serve. But if not, what? Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. What are these guys trying to prove? Are they trying to prove that their God is powerful enough to miraculously save their lives? Are they trying to prove that their God is more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar's God? Are they trying to prove that God is more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar's hands? No. They're just trying to prove that they serve their God and not Nebuchadnezzar's. That this is such a personal conviction. This is an individual heart's conviction that they have with their God directly. I just want to prove that this is the God whom I serve. We better speed it up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression of his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the fiery furnace seven times more than was usually heated, and he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men who were bound in their coats and their trousers and their turbans and their other garments were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was so urgent, and the, fire, and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So this is Nebuchadnezzar's backlash. He hears their answer, and his soft spot for these three guys is overtaken by the rage, his mood, that he feels violently angry at them. And he kind of hikes every detail up a notch. He says, not only will you be thrown into a fiery furnace, but I'm going to do whatever I can to make it exceedingly hotter. That seven times hotter is not uh, just a, a, a quantitative um, measurement. Like, I want you to figure out how hot it is and find out, make it seven times that. It's just, it's just like, I'm going to make it really, really, really hot, as hot as it can be. And then he says, I'm going to have my strongest men of valor, mighty men of valor, be the ones who tie you guys up so that you can't even escape the ropes before you hit the ground. What's really interesting is these men of valor, of valor are the ones who tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're thrown into the fire wearing this clothing. This clothing is listed because this is the uniforms they wore. Remember, they're not just Jewish people. They're government officials in the land of Babylon. These uniforms represent that these are men of discernment and wisdom, and ironically, they're being killed because of a belief that they hold in deep conviction. Now, these this uh, furnace is probably shaped a little bit like a giant potbelly oven, and you can imagine that these three guys are thrown through the chimney down, and then, and then there's a front half like where, where Nebuchadnezzar can see what's happening inside. So at the very top, these guys who throw the three down um, end up being overcome by the heat, and they die. The two of them die. Why is that included? So that way you understand the depth of this. This was not a smoldering fire. It wasn't a fire that, perchance, the heat killed one asthmatic third-string linebacker. I can say that because that's exactly what I was in high school. It's not just one guy who dies from this. It's two. And it's not a weakling. It's not even an average guy. It's two mighty men of valor. These guys were John Rambos. And the heat killed them. And they weren't even inside. And verse 23 is the to-be-continued moment where it says, These three men... Here the contrast. Those two men died. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound, into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. It just got real. This is, there is no chance for these three men. Verses 24 through 27 are when the miracle happens. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke saying to the counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men, loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the son of God, or son of the gods. 
the Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servant of the Most High God, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men, on whose body the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar knows his orders quite well. When he looks at the front of the fiery furnace, he sees that something inside is not what he said to do. He said, throw three guys and make sure they're tied up. But now I see four guys and they're not tied up. In fact, they're walking around the fire freely. This is a word where his, this is a day where his words are vastly being undermined by a greater authority. Later, he'll say that my, the words of the king have been frustrated They've been changed and disregarded. This is one of those days for him. Something unique about the fourth person is that he's like the Son of God. I I wonder what it is that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Was it that this fourth person, this angel, maybe even Jesus Christ himself, was surrounded by light? That's normally what we picture. Imagine that, though. If that's the case, it would have to be some prominent light. It's in the midst of fire. How do you discern the difference between a light emitting from from a figure and the light of the flames? Or maybe it's that his clothing was bright and, and white. Something about this he recognized was not human, but was something divine. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are called to from Nebuchadnezzar um, as he approaches the front of the fire. And he says, servants of the most high God. I'll park there just for a quick second. This becomes Nebuchadnezzar's favorite title for the Jewish God, Yahweh. And it means so much coming from a guy who used to be a pagan. In chapter 4, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's kind of encounter with the Lord that really changed things for him. But this is a guy who knew gods. He served gods. He worshipped gods. He attributed the the successes of his conquests to the gods he worshipped. But he has now deemed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God the most high God. Out of all the gods I know, this one is the one in charge. He will call Yahweh the most high God in this verse. In 4.2, he will hear the term most high in a vision, and he'll call him the most high God again in verse 34 of chapter 4. This becomes his favorite title to describe this powerful God. He also comes to confess the, the, uh, the very thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were trying to prove. Remember, they're just trying to prove that they serve their own God and not his. He says, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And look that there are witnesses around. These are government officials. These are the very guys who succumbs to the command of the kings to fall down and worship the image. These guys witness the miracle that the, apparently, according to the king's word, this most high God saved these three men from this punishment. It's witnessed by people around them who, uh, who they themselves were not able to stand firm against this command. They noticed that not only had their bodies not been harmed by the fire, but not even the clothes were cinched, and they didn't even smell like smoke. I love that detail, because when people come back from a bonfire, you know, they just kind of sweat the smell of smoke, but that's not even on their clothes. This is proof. The two men who die at the top of the furnace, that's proof. This massive gang of witnesses at the base of the furnace, this is proof. Daniel's reminding us in this chapter that this is not just an allegory, that this actually took place. Before I read the last three verses, I want to talk, I want to link this back to the intro. How does this relate to us? I've spoken to people in our church, and and I've heard how how desperate we feel and how hopeless we feel in the things that surround us. The abusers who traffic. The, uh, the corrupt business dealers who are in charge. The politicians that, that you feel are extremely ungodly having so much authority and doing all the wrong things. And it breeds hopelessness. Notice what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do. 
They don't put their heads down and ignore what's going on around them. Neither do they strengthen themselves. Instead, they just continue serving God. They keep their eyes set on who's really genuinely in charge. That doesn't mean that they don't answer when something wicked is going on. Their insurgence of not bowing down to this idol was public enough to where these Chaldeans saw it. So I'm not saying we have to keep quiet, but this has to be a personal thing. What are we trying to prove? That we're posturing ourselves on the right side of issues? So I'm going to post the right thing on our social media? What are we trying to prove? That our God is not this hateful God that's, uh, that's represented by apparent Christians in the world who say terrible things and do terrible things? What are we trying to prove? These guys, all they were trying to prove is that they served the true and living God. That God is able to deliver us from these things. And that he will ultimately deliver us from this great oppression. He may deliver us from these incidents, incidents of abuse, of persecution even. He may do that incidentally if he wants to because he's able, but he certainly will deliver us from the brokenness of this world. What's fascinating in the end of this passage is we see that their personal service to God the fact that all they really cared about was just proving that they serve God and not the idols, it actually causes a wake of changes in the world where they live. It wasn't their aim. They weren't against changing things, but really all they were trying to do was serve their God personally. Verses 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies, and they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, language, which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut into pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He went from, in chapter 2, saying that this God is a God who reveals all things then the beginning of chapter 3 saying you must worship this image instead of worshiping your God. And now he's saying it is a law. No one can say anything bad about their God. Or they have to answer to me. That is change. We don't see conversion from Nebuchadnezzar here. Don't celebrate like, oh yeah, killing blasphemers and burning up their houses. That's totally what God wanted out of Nebuchadnezzar. God wanted Nebuchadnezzar's heart. We'll see more of that next week. But we come to understand that we worship and serve this God because no other God can deliver like this. No other God can deliver like this. How did God deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He sent his messenger. Maybe Jesus himself came down amidst this difficult, ugly environment, this burning, fiery furnace, and freed them from their binds himself. Who else can deliver like this? Whatever, what other God will condescend to his sinful people and take their punishment upon themselves to set them free? Only our God, which is why he's the most high God. If you're not a Christian today, I want you to think over the stuff in this world that you hate. Some of those things that you hate, the things that are definitely abusive, objectively bad, God hates those things. And the way that he delivers this world from them, it's actually not by just from preventing them from ever existing. It's about him stepping into that and taking those hits himself. It's about him hanging on the cross and dying and taking the consequence of our sins. And he may deliver us from the bad stuff going on now he, because he's able to. But he may or may not, depending on what is his will, but what he will certainly do is ultimately deliver us from the brokenness of this world. If you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you, if you accept the provision of his salvation, he will deliver you. And he may even deliver you from the incidents going on in your life right now. If you are a Christian today, don't posture. Don't beat the pulpit. Don't promote yourself as being on the right side of the issue. Don't promote yourself as being the right kind of Christian. 
You just publicly serve God. Don't let people overlook the fact that you're serving the one true God. And make sure it's personal. This is a personal thing between God and me. It's not just about me wanting to be on the right side of issues. It's not just about me trying to change the world. If God's put on your heart to change the world, do it. We're so blessed to have a world where we can do that today. But it has to first start with something personal. This is about me serving my God. And God, the God who delivers, the most high God, can and will affect the people in power around you and will change things. And that's why we serve him instead of the rulers on this earth. The, uh, I want to close today just with a perfect cross-reference passage for this. It's not the only one, actually. There's, there's quite great ones, but turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 10. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I'm going to keep reading. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered? Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Don't be afraid of who's in power here. You fear God. You serve him only. Serve him alone because he has the ultimate power over all things and over your life. And the beautiful thing, guys, yes, he has the power over you, but the best news of that is that he values you. He cares about you. And he will deliver you. No other God can deliver like this by stepping into the midst of the fire himself. Only Jesus. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you so much that you are a God who delivers, that you are a God who changes, that you are a God who enters into the midst of difficulties, of brokenness, to set free the captive, to break the binds yourself. When we face difficulties in our lives, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus, you said that. Don't be surprised when you fall into many trials. You do not promise to miraculously free us from persecution and from trials, but you will ultimately deliver us from the ultimate tyranny, the tyranny of brokenness and sin that's not just in this world, but also in our hearts. The things we cannot escape, you've entered in, and your Bible says that you became sin, that we might become your righteousness. Lord, I'm so thankful that I, I know that there are are people here today who aren't sure if, if they want to be Christians or if this is real. I pray that you would move within them to want to ask what that means, that we can become the righteousness of God. There is no other God who can deliver like this. We worship you, most high God, and we praise you in the name of, that is above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. If your children are